I was so kind of just floored. I'm like, I can't believe that people are talking like this. Like, did we not learn anything from reducing people to the color of their skin? Like, what? How is this not the most regret? I can't believe this is happening again. And when I would see people posting things on Twitter and, you know, hearing things on, I'm like, this is going to be studied because in a hundred years, if we're still around, people are going to look back and they're going to be looking at this and they're going to be like, I can't believe Americans did that again. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dom. You may notice that I'm a few days late getting out this podcast episode. That's because the one I was going to post, which was recorded on October 5th, suddenly seemed sort of not right, uh, considering what happened in Israel on October 7th, not to mention the whole situation over there since then. I'm still working on trying to find someone to talk about that situation specifically, and I don't really want to do that until we can back up from it at least a few feet. But insofar as there's been a lot of interest in the response to the attacks, especially the response on college campuses, I thought I would bring in someone who talks very insightfully about that. He is Ben Appel. Ben is a writer living in New York who started writing about these issues a couple of years ago. You may remember an article he wrote in Newsweek in April of 2022 called The New Homophobia, where he talked about the way the new gender movement sometimes takes gay people and fits them into a transgender box, all in the service of the same stereotypes that progressives spent so many years fighting. Anyway, we're going to talk about that kind of stuff in the bonus portion of this episode for paying subscribers. In the main version, we're going to talk about how this anti-Semitism has arisen over the last decade or so on campuses. I think uh, it really snuck up on a lot of people. And uh, Ben has um, some really insightful and interesting things to say about that. He was a student at Columbia University in his 30s, and he's now writing a book about that experience. And um, this is a, a really great conversation, quite timely, I think. So here it is. Ben Appel, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thanks, Megan. We're recording this on October 16th, so we're a little more than a week past the massacre in Israel by Hamas. A lot has transpired since then. There's a war going on. Um, The episode I had ready to go for this week uh, wasn't exactly on a totally trivial subject, but it didn't feel right to post it so soon. I'm not going to have a geopolitical discussion about Israel-Palestine here. Uh, unless you want to, you know, <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. surprise. <laughs> um, but I think that one thing that very much folds into what we talk about around here is the response to the attacks by progressive groups in general and on college campuses specifically. I wanted to bring you in basically for a reality check. Let's start here. How closely does campus activism resemble what we're seeing on places like TikTok and Twitter? Are are conservatives and centrist types making too much of this? Oh, yeah. No, they're not. Um, It it is, it's pretty accurate, I would say. I mean, even when I was at, you know, I graduated from Columbia in 2020. And just for your listeners to clarify, like I am in, well, now I'm 40. I was in my 30s when I I went to the school because I had not earned my undergraduate degree years ago. I had dropped out of college and then I went back to school and they have a a program there for non-traditional students, like people who have taken breaks in their undergraduate course level. I was there for three and a half years in my thirties. And I do remember even like maybe my second year there just kind of being really shocked. It was a culture shock. Um, I was so, you know, amped up to be part of this radically progressive liberal, you know, community so psyched about it. I was devastated by Donald Trump's election and I was just ready and raring to go. And then what I encountered there was this very odd conformist, you know, creepy cult-like culture and it and I said to you know, to answer your question from like the second year that I just, it felt like an extension of a Twitter feed that Columbia itself was a Twitter feed. You could scroll through it, and and that's kind of what you would find on campus. Everything it just bounced bounced off of each other. 
Okay. And you're talking about everything because one of the things we hear is like, oh, you guys are just focusing on liberal arts and the humanities. And you're talking about, not only are you only talking about elite colleges, you're talking about these very specific departments. This can't possibly be happening in engineering and in hard sciences. Is that true? Well, you know, so I I was a humanities scholar there. So I was, you know, studying writing and I was taking a lot of, but, but the thing about Columbia is, is that it does pride itself. And I think it's a great aspect of the university is that it prides itself on what what's called its core curriculum. So, you know, regardless of the uh, academic path, the discipline that, that people, you know, regardless of major, um, students are all required to take courses in the arts and the humanities. Um, for arts and humanities scholars, it, they have to take classes in the sciences and math and statistics, et cetera. So, you, part of their curriculum is getting a really well-rounded education. So you're not just, if you go in and you're study, if you're part of the CIS school, which is like the school of um, engineering, you're not just sequestered in there. I mean, obviously most of your classes, especially in your later years are going to be, you know, that, but throughout the entire time that you're there, you're really kind of engaging across disciplines. And so it it is everybody encounters it. It's not just not just the, in the arts and humanities. Can you just talk about what was happening in the classroom for you? Can you give some examples? Yeah, oh sure. So it's tricky because it's hard to describe situations where things happen and they can be really subtle. You know, there's like really subtle energy shifts and changes in the room, you know, and it's hard to kind of articulate. It wasn't like these like major, major occurrences that happened where, you know, suddenly someone was screaming at somebody. It was just a a, a culture of, I just knew, I, I knew I was self-censoring and I knew that other people were too. And on, on campus, there was this really, this idea about like, oh, it's all about self-care and, you know, it's okay to not be okay and, you know, there was, there had been, unfortunately, some suicides reported, um, you know, mental illness, mental health was a big thing, you know, stress culture was a big topic that people talked about on Columbia's campus. And I kind of was like, honestly, I know that it's so much of the pressure of of the the rigorous academic stuff that we're doing. I know that there's just a, a lot going on, but I also was like, I know that people are stressed out because they're terrified. They are, they can't sleep because they're terrified. They're up late and they're wondering what could I say? Or what, what about this? It was, it was, you know, because the repercussions, the consequences were so severe to be exiled. And, and, and you were saying like, how accurate is it on Twitter? I think that you know, in social media, TikTok, et cetera, when that was, you know, 2017 after Trump was inaugurated, you know, we saw all of this kind of cancellation, cancel culture stuff kind of starting to take off online. And in that way too, it really mirrored the campus because, you know, nobody at college, especially when you're younger, you know, and you're, you're coming in your 18, 19, 20, 21, you don't want to be known as some kid on campus that's saying, that said the wrong thing in class and then, and everybody knows about it. And suddenly you're just, you know, an exile. Um, and then they saw that. And then it wasn't just like, Oh, well, everybody on campus might hear it's like, obviously it's going to be online. People are going to tweet about it and post about it. And then it's just going to, you know, it was like the, nobody, the, the consequences of it were just so overwhelming, so overwhelming and understandably. So, I mean, it's terrifying. So, you know, just there was so much at stake, and there was the stakes were so high to stay in line and to to say and to 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 speak the right thing. So, at that time, I remember, you know, I had taken and again, Megan, I'm like this progressive, excited. You know, I you know, I'm protesting with the kids in uh, you know my first semester against the Muslim ban. You know, I I interned for Glad my first year was just on board with all of it. But I remember what really shocked me was I was just a cis white guy. You know, like, I first of all, I didn't know what cisgender meant at the yeah, time. Yeah, we should say, is that how you pronounce it? Cis? cis. I thought it was cis. cis. I know, I was, they're like, why do you say cis? I'm like, I don't even know. Um, cis. Cis, sound, uh, cis 
I mean, sorry, it sounds like sissy. It's, it's, it's like the opposite. It's I the just, worst. I mean, it sounds but, like kissing. It sounds. Like, <laughs> it, how, it, it should be six. Like, well, it, can you be cis X? Yeah, yeah, cis X. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what I'll say. Yeah, I you am. were a cis white guy, but I mean, we should say you are a gay guy. Well, I'm a gay guy. So, so this is the thing. So, I had, you know, I had worked in marriage equality on marriage equality campaign, like volunteered for that in Maryland back in 2012. I had worked after that. I had volunteered for like a pro uh, transgender rights legislation campaign in Maryland. And that was kind of really what sparked my decision to go back to school. So like, I'm a gay guy, but you know, when I went on camp, I'm not very obviously gay all the time. I don't genuflect all the time. I don't, you know, I maybe, you know, quote unquote, straight acting, I suppose. Like I just... And I think that being a little bit older and being like, it didn't matter. I think people just saw me as a straight white guy, right? Especially being a little bit older, they could tell I was a little bit older. So they're like, oh, he's a probably, G- probably a GS student. And a lot of GS students are former, vet- are veterans. Because- What's GS? I'm sorry. The School of General Studies is the school that that I that non traditional program okay. um, that I was in, and so the, there's three schools on campus. There's CIS, which is the engineering school. There's CC Columbia College, which is like the regular you know college that the kids go to, and then there's General Studies, which is people that are all different ages, but that have had a break in their academic careers and come back. So a lot of them are like ballerinas, actors, veterans have really interesting different kinds of stories and everybody is matriculated in together. Everybody takes classes together. There's also Barnard. So Barnard is a Columbia affiliated school and that's the women's school. So really uh, students from all four of these schools are taking classes together. So your classes can be with, you know, Barnard students, the C students, CC students, and then GS students who could be up to like 60 or, you know, 67 years old, or it can be like a 22 year old or 19, you know, it, it, all that you need to do to get into that school or qualify for admissions is to, I think, have a year long break in your studies okay, um, to, to get into it. So I was this older guy. So I think a lot of them maybe thought, oh, he might be a veteran because, it had a lot of mil, we had a lot of mill vets in the school because general studies was actually it started before then, but it really ramped up after um, the Second World War uh, for a lot of GIs. They kind of started this specific program to allow veterans to continue their educations after being disrupted by Columbia did specifically. You're saying Columbia did specifically, oh. right? Okay, so that's so it still has that legacy. There's just a lot of mill vets that come there. So I, in class, it was almost like I just learned really quickly that I kind of had to start qualifying, oh, you know, as a gay man or, you know, oh, as, you know, like, I, I mean. <laughs> you were leaning I would, on anything you had. Right. I would joke because I'm taking classes that, you know, have to do with gender and sexuality and human rights. And if I would volunteer a thought, it was like, you know. It's all about identity and it's all about identitarianism and and identity politics, essentially. And so everybody's just viewed and judged by these superficial, these, you know, immutable characteristics. Um, And you kind of look someone up and down and, and when they open their mouth to speak, you know, you're, if it's this cis white guy, you're expecting it to be, you know, less than woke and then if it is woke enough, you're pleasantly surprised. And if it's not, then you it's your job to call it out and to say, oh, I, you know, and that was the the attitude. And that was the the that was what it was like. The first kind of like small run-in I had was I had taken my uh, my first semester a class called Contemporary Islamic Civilization. And that was taught by a guy named Hamid Debashi, and he's he's a controversial figure on campus. Um, and he's an he's an, a, an Iranian American. And um, but I, I really wanted to learn about Islam. I wanted to learn about Islamic civilization and culture, and just really educate myself. And there was discussion sections, you know, like lab discussion sections for the class. And in that class, we were talking about gender and sexuality in the Muslim world, and I think Iran specifically. And, you know, someone had mentioned how, and I think the TA was saying that, you know, a lot of times, you know, men who are very effeminate are really harassed by Iran's morality police and that they have a lot of a harder time 
women who are really butch or masculine, they certainly are as well. But the men are, for some reason, more visible and are given a harder time. And I said, well, I said, you know, that has a lot to do with sexism and misogyny, you know, that for men who are uh, behaving effeminately, they're kind of degrading themselves, you know, by being like women. Whereas with women, if they're butch, it's like, you know, of course, it's not acceptable. Women are supposed to behave in a certain way. But in some cultures or some societies, sometimes it's interpreted as, you know, not as bad. You know, women might have it a little bit easier in that regard, you know, because men aren't supposed to behave like women. And this young woman, her hand shot up and she said, there's nothing easier about being a woman in society. And just, you know, really kind of went off on what I, what I said, which is a fundamentally like, I don't know, I, I think it's a pretty feminist perspective, you know, but I guess I maybe I did use the word easier somewhere in there, suggesting, you know, and she just latched onto that and just had it. And nobody said anything. Everybody was quiet. And the TA just looked at me and he was like, all right, well, let's just move on. And I was so floored because I stunned because I, first of all, all my friends have always been, closest friends have always been women. I've just been all my, I was raised by a single woman. My mom, you know, from, she divorced my dad when I was 12. I have two older sisters. All my friends have always been women. I'm just a gay guy that has a lot of girlfriends. So to be kind of accused, like in front of a big class of kind of saying something that wasn't adequately pro-woman was really startling to me. So after class, I, I walked up to her and I said, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm Ben. I said, I, I was just curious, like, what was it about that? I said specifically that you had found, you know, offensive or, or wrong. And she kind of looked at me and she just was exasperated. And she was like, I don't know. What did you say again? Like, she didn't even know. <laughs> I thought she was going to say, it's not my job to educate you. Right. Well, yeah. And it was also like, she didn't even, she wasn't even listening. She just heard some part of this, to me, this is how I interpreted it was, and this is that to answer your question in a very long-winded way, like, what was it like in class? It was just like, this is what, how I started to see, like, I am a cis white guy. So when I open my mouth, I just have to expect this kind of really bad faith interpretation of whatever comes out of my mouth, even if it's like the, you know, the most progressive thing you can say. And that was really the beginning of starting to see, huh, there's something going on here where I'm not in at all. I am, I am out. One, at uh, first I have to qualify myself as a gay guy because if I'm gay, then that's not so bad. But then before long, you know, I was like, oh, wait, I have to be queer. I can't just be gay. I can't be a cis gay. There's cis gays are horrible. Cis gays are, <laughs> are in some ways worse than straight white guys. Like, good Lord, there's just this, this animosity um, and that was where that's that's kind of, you know. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about the difference between queer and gay in a, in a few minutes. But I'm curious, like in this class, what do you think would have happened if the professor had been there, not the TA? Mm. Um. Well, because a lot of what we're hearing is like these kids are being radicalized or just, you know, educated in certain ways by the professors. It's not like they're picking this stuff up from each other necessarily or from online. It's like, this is the curriculum. So like, you know, we're seeing, I want to talk about what we've seen in the last week with regard to, you know, the situation in, in Israel and the, you know, free Palestine signage everywhere. That's coming straight down from the top in a lot of cases. So here's the thing. Kids are, yes, kid, th these students are being indoctrinated with really radical, honestly, anti-Western, anti-American. There's really no easier way to say it. It's just blatantly anti-Western, anti-American views, you know, that really are. But it's, and certainly professors are espousing these ideas. Absolutely. Um, especially in specific classes where post-colonial theories are a predominant lens through which these things are discussed. Queer theory, you know, gender studies classes, absolutely. These critical theory courses are very much about that. They are, you know, there's this gay historian, Richter Norton, who said something like, you know, he wrote something once where it's like, you know, this kind of socialist critical theory education, it's not about, you know, 
discovering or creating new knowledge. It's about creating social change. It's not about, you know, getting smarter per se or really studying the facts. Facts are kind of irrelevant because facts are, there's no objective reality when it comes to postmodernism, you know, and everybody, it's just all about positionality, you know, like how everybody sees, you know, things. And of course, then certain perspectives get privileged over the other ones. Um, the more marginalized you are, the more your perspective is privileged and the more immune you are to, to criticism for whatever views you have. So, you know, yes, they are being indoctrinated with this, but it also does have a lot to do with TAs because TAs are coming out of these programs and they're, but it's not just that because there were, there were professors, when I look back and I see, yes, there were professors who were saying some crazy stuff. But it wasn't just the professors themselves. It was almost like I don't think they understood how radical and how, what's the word, explosive the right, the, the readings that they were assigning and teaching. You know, these ideas that were just fundamentally at their core really cynical and pessimistic about the liberal world order and about Western civilization. And so there were a lot of, it was almost like the professors, a lot of them were really kind of in the crossfire too, because the student, the stu it's really a red guard. I mean, it's, it's a red guard. There's really no other way but to say it. It's this red guard of students who are in class and it's it's almost like because ad administrations have grown so dramatically in the past especially like 10 years and faculties have shrunk so it's this bloated bureaucracy these bloated administrations of DEI and multicultural affairs and all of these people and it's like almost like the administration and the students against the faculty but then of course there's all of this stuff that a lot of the professors are teaching. So they love it. They love the administration being, but uh, what, what I've realized is, is that a lot of what's coming into this is a lot of these educators and especially administrators are being educated in these ed schools, these education schools, teachers college at Columbia, is one of them. Right. And they're really not learning how to be really fantastic teachers. They're learning how to be social justice advocates and how to train social justice warriors. That's essentially what it is. So the requirements aren't very rigorous to get into these schools. And, you know, people's pay depends on, you know, having advanced degrees. So they, you know, are guaranteed raises for this. So there's just a huge cost, you know, benefit. But I want to understand when you said before that it's the administrators and the students against the Faculty? Say more about that. Yeah, so administrations on universities have exploded. I mean, by the tens of thousands. I mean, there's just so... They've just grown and grown and grown, and, and they spend, and schools spend millions or even billions of dollars on hiring all of these special new positions, especially like in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and all these different administrators. And so what's interesting is that, you know, these students are very much like, Oh, bring down the patriarchy. You know, they're very much about getting professors fired for, you know, being jerks and, you know, all of this stuff. And yet they are so dependent on the administration. The administration coddles them and babies them and, you know, is so involved in their, you know, lives. It's almost like this they don't realize how paternalistic and how kind of really truly patriarchal this kind of system is. And it's almost like the administrators have become the parents. They absolutely have become the parents, Megan. That's exactly what it is. And I feel like with a lot of these young people, and of course, this is not everyone, you know, this is not everyone, but this is kind of like the trend is that a lot of these young, these students are very, very privileged. You know, they're very smart. They're, they've, been, you know, reared to eventually attend an Ivy League university like Columbia. And the administration is kind of like an ex like you said an extension of their parents where they want the guidance and the protection and they resent it at the same time. You know, so it's like it's this weird however they feel about their parents, you know, oh, oh gosh, I can't stand my mom but also can I have a new iPhone? 
Um, and then it's like, oh, um, the, these administrators, but also this person just said something a little bit offensive to me and I can't take it. You need to do something about it. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, I went. Wow. So they're going to the administrators for something as small as that. Like they will go into somebody's office, like the dean of students or whatever. Well, they have a bias reporting, right, right. bias reporting system there. I mean, it's where you can say, I mean, you're reporting bias. Like <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. hear someone say something and you say, oh, this person is clearly, you know, and you can report it. And then there can be like education session, you know, essentially struggle sessions, you know, where there can be mediation, you know, between students who... And that's scary, you know? That's scary. I want to understand, yeah. I mean, I want to understand, though, like, in terms of the curriculum and in terms of the professors, where are they getting, for instance, the idea that Israel is an evil colonizer and that there's no debate and that Palestine needs to be freed and these are the most, you know, these reductive terms define the argument like where is this coming from like when you when when you when we started seeing these demonstrations and this blatant anti-semitism over the last few weeks what was your reaction i mean columbia university is i think like just under 25 percent jewish the population on campus students and faculty well, that was well. going on when i was there i remember during my orientation like going out to eat with a couple of people and them talking about you know signs for uh, like about the Israel-Palestine conflict, maybe there was like a protest or something like that, or you know, there's all of these groups calling for divestment of Israel, and and I was very ignorant about this. I was kind of like, uh, as far as I knew, Democratic platforms they've always been like pro-Israel, you know, just like Republican platforms have been. But it was kind of like it seemed like the liberal thing to support Israel. I knew it was a complicated situation, but I also was, well, Jewish people were Democrats. That's what I knew for a exactly. Long time. And so when they said, someone said at the dinner, well, obviously it's the progressive thing to be pro-Palestine and to be anti-Israel. And I was like, oh, my ears kind of, and I was like, gosh, I realize I have a lot to learn about this issue, you know? So where are these ideas coming from in terms of the classroom? So Hamid Dabashi, he was the professor that taught my, my very first semester, Columbia, I'm sorry, uh, Contemporary Islamic Civilization. I didn't know. I knew that he was a little bit, you know, controversial. I had no idea the extent of it. He assigned a lot of readings by another Columbia scholar called uh, named Joseph Massad. Um, and then, of course, we read a lot of Edward Said, and then we read him in Debashi's books. And Edward Said is a kind of like the father of postcolonial theory. He wrote Orientalism back in 1978. He passed away, I think, in 2003. But he was a Columbia scholar, and he was like of a, a, a spearheaded post-colonial theory in a lot of ways, and especially this concept of, of Orientalism. And so what I learned later was Hamid Dabashi and Joseph Massad were, there was a, a documentary, I think in 2004, that it came out, created by Columbia students and graduates who were Jewish, who reported the, the alleged harassment that they had suffered at the hands of, of different professors, especially Joseph Massad, and Hamid Devashi was one of those professors. These, you know, saying that, um, and they were just documenting and saying these experiences that they had with with them. And they had gone to the, um, I think, like the the on campus rabbi to kind of talk about these things. And he was interviewed in it as well. And you know, he was. It was it was a really eye opening thing. And, and the professors ended up writing, I think, responses to it in Columbia Spectator at the time I did read those. But I mean, even in this film, you know, at one point, Debashi was one of the professors that was talked about. And, and, and they have quotes that come on screen throughout this documentary. And one of them is Hamid Debashi. He wrote in a September 2004 article for an Egyptian newspaper, Al-Haram. He says, Al-Haram. He says, quote, half a century of systematic maiming and murdering of other people has left its deep mark on the faces of the Israeli Jews. The way they talk, walk, the way they greet each other. There is a vulgarity of character that is bone deep and structural to the skeletal vertebrae of its culture. Okay? So this is something written by this professor at Columbia. Joseph Massad, who is, whose work we read, who's a you know, post-colonial theorists. He's, I think he's Palestinian himself. Hamad Abashi is, Ira, is Iranian, Iranian-American. 
And then he had said, you know, at a 2002 lecture at Oxford, he had said the Jewish state is a racist state that does not have a right to exist. One of the students in the film said that, you know, he called him one of the most dangerous intellectuals or self-proclaimed intellectuals on campus because he uses his classroom essentially as a platform for political propaganda. He said that Mossad's one of his favorite things or ideas to say is the Palestinian is the new Jew and the Jew is the new Nazi. You know, he said it's intellectually popular and justified nowadays to criticize Israel and to question its legitimacy. This, so this is going back, and this again, this is like 2004 that this came out. So this is, you know, one student had said that it, this lecture, a, a um, Israeli student had maybe asked Masa, Joseph Mossad a question, and Joseph Mossad responded by saying, how many Palestinians have you killed? And he said, excuse me, and he said, how, tell me how many Palestinian people have you killed? And he said, well, if you're going to ask me that, then how many of your family members cheered on the day that 9-11, if we're going to talk stereotypes, you know? And there was a lot of ruckus and, and, and something. That, it, that, this is what the, the student talks about in the film. Another student had said that another, I think his name's Saliba, who I didn't have and I don't know about, he had said to a Jewish student, after class, allegedly, he had, she, she was having this conversation with him for about 40 minutes. And he said, let me see your eyes. And he said, see, you have either green or blue eyes. You're not a Semite. Therefore, you have no claim to that land. You know, so there's a lot of really anti-Israel, really strong anti-Israel sentiment the, among the faculty. And it trickles down into the student body for sure. But that coupled with, you know, students, you know, I think colonialism and colonization is one of like, is I probably heard that word in those words more than anything on campus because it is about decolonizing, you know, syllabi and decolonizing literature and decolonizing education and decolonizing lands. You know, I mean, before classes, people would give, you know, Debashi himself would say, oh, we're on the Lenape uh, Native American land. So honestly, to them or to a lot of these folks who are taught that colonization, that Western colonization, colonialism is the scourge of the earth and it's wrought nothing but violence and devastation and oppression and slavery, et cetera, that, you know, Israel in a lot of ways is seen as this modern, what they think is a colonizing nation. And so, you know, divesting and, you know, freeing the Palestinian people is, it's a leftist cause, you know, because of that attitude that is so deep. I mean, it's, it's so powerful. We should say, so Barry Weiss, who is the founder of the Free Press, friend of mine, friend of, you know, many of us, she gets criticized for all kinds of things, but, you know, often you know, when you ask, like, what I, I call it, Barry Weiss derangement syndrome, and um, you know, I ask people, well, what is it that she did? What What are you? What What is it exactly? And they go, Oh, she tried to cancel people when she was a Columbia. That she's known for this. She tried to get a professor fired, and it always comes back to that. And nobody ever knows quite what it refers to exactly. And what I always say is, Okay, well, you are the very people who are saying that college students are just college students, and they shouldn't be held accountable for their ridiculous positions and beliefs, but um, sounds like what you're describing is probably exactly what she was responding to. I don't know exactly when she was at Columbia, but it makes sense that it would have been the early 2000s. Yeah, and so, exactly. And so th that's the thing. I, and I, when I was watching this documentary and when I was learning about all this, I thought, oh, this must be what she had been either been involved in or she was adjacent to this. Yeah. I mean, I think er Edward Said was in the mix in some way. Um, well, actually, Joseph Mossad specifically. And so it's, you know, to, to answer your question about that, about her specifically is she actually just tweeted a few days ago, maybe five days ago, I'm not sure, something that Mossad had written since the massacre um, on October 7th in Israel. Um, and she said, I was called a, you know, hypocrite or much worse for telling the truth about this guy back when I was a Columbia student. This is what he had to say about that terrorist attack specifically. And it's not good. I mean, he he said, I think he uses the word like awesome in it or, you know, just the 
I mean, he's, he's a, here we go. She says on October 12th, Joseph Massad, the author of this piece is a tenured professor at Columbia. I have been criticizing him since I was an undergrad and was accused of being, being a hysteric and worse for doing so. I was just listening to what he had to say, read it for yourself. And it's on a website called electronicintifada.net. And on October 8th, the day after that massacre, he wrote this, um, just another battle or the Palestinian war of liberation is the title of it. And, you know, he talks about the surprise attack and, you know, just the the words that he uses and the way that he talks about it, they're not very sympathetic to what, what they endured there. Are there like Jewish students in these classrooms? Yeah. Like, responding? I mean, what, like, like I just said, I mean, there's a big Jewish population at Columbia and, you know, presumably they enroll in Islamic studies courses. Does anybody ever say anything? To be honest, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how it's really it's it's a fraught issue and and a lot of Jewish students have a really really hard time with this culture and with this dialogue and, and the way that things are spoken about there. I mean it's it's not easy and yes they are in these classes and yes they do volunteer their thoughts and say things. I'm sure that a lot of them stay quiet. You know, I do know too that there's a faction of you know, and I don't know the extent of this, Megan, but there are factions of, I think, Jewish students that are also part of like the pro-Palestinian cause, you know, or that are kind of right. critical of of Israel. Um, but I mean, Israelis and Jews are critical of the Israeli government and then not Yahoo all, all the world over, you know? Um, so there's criticism there. But yes, I know that a lot of Jewish students, but even in, in GS, the general studies school, a lot of the or a number of the students that I met, I said that they were American uh, U.S. Mil, mil vets. There were actually IDF soldiers, Israeli Defense Force soldiers that that studied there. And so I can only imagine what they have been thinking and what they have been enduring since, you know, if if any of them are on campus um, and what kind of interrogations they're getting from. Because if you're an Israeli student, especially not just a Jewish student, but an Israeli student, you know, you're a, you're a colonizer. And, you know, uh, Pamela Presky wrote about this in Sapir recently. And, you know, she's talked about this before and as of, have so many people, you know, but it's about colonization, but it's also about whiteness. And Jewish people, Jewish Israelis, they're seen as white. And Palestinians are seen as people of color. And it's it's a white, to these reductive takes, it's a white, a white race oppressing a, a brown skin race. And that's just that's just how it is. In that article that Pamela Presky just wrote, because I just read this like yesterday, but she mentioned something maybe a few years ago about how there was an activist that said to a lot of black people, we see Jews as hyper whiteness or something. It's amazing because Jews were not considered white up until pretty recently. It, well, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. It's like they have been, you know, one of the peoples that have, you know, suffered the most white supremacist oppression. In this article that Pamela Presky wrote, she wrote Critical Race Theory and the quote, hyper white Jew. And in it, she says, in the critical social justice paradigm, that is how Jews are viewed. Jews who have never been seen as white by those for whom being white is a moral good are now seen as white by those for whom whiteness is an unmitigated evil. And that kind of really sums it up pretty well. You know, it the the dialogue and the discourse is so negative and it's so divisive and so cynical. I mean, like, good God, I feel like <laughs> I have been, you know, an actively anti-racist person for most of my, if not all of my adult life. And when I came to Columbia and since then and seeing the ways that people talk about whiteness and white people. It's not like this thing there. I think, oh my gosh, I'm so offended like that they're talking about me and my pe-. But I was so kind of just floored. I'm like, I can't believe that people are talking like this. Like, did we not learn anything from reducing people to the color of their skin? Like, what? How is this not the most regret? I can't believe this is happening again. And when I would see people posting things on Twitter and, you know, hearing things on, I'm like, this is going to be studied because in a hundred years, if we're still around, people are going to look back and they're going to be looking at this and they're going to be like, I can't believe Americans did that again. I can't believe that it was one drop rule, you know, in the antebellum, pre-antebellum, like pre-Civil War era, era, 
And then suddenly we're going back to these people are white and these people are black and these people are white adjacent and these people are practicing whiteness, you know? And these kind of affinity groups that they're doing where they're separating people by race. Like, again, going back to the one drop rule, you know, I'm taking this African-American literature course at Columbia with this brilliant professor. You know, of course, we're reading Toni Morrison and Zora Neale Hurston and all these things. And Toni Morrison's always been one of my favorite authors. And I'm, we're like learning, of course, a lot about African-American history, especially U.S. history. And I'm seeing how, you know, these things are being said and, you know, these racial preferences and and dividing people into affinity groups. And I'm like, who who decides who's black? You know, like, are we going to go back to this one drop rule? Like, who who decides who's white and who's black? I mean, it's not the easiest thing to just divide people down these arbitrary lines of race. And I just thought, good God, what are we doing? It was, it's terrifying and it's still scary. And what we see now happening on campuses with all of these students rising up to protest and support Palestine. Now, at Columbia, there was a protest just a few days ago or last, I think on Friday, maybe, or Thursday, I'm sorry, in the afternoon. And it took over like the whole quad there. And it was a lot of pro-Israel students on one side. And then, of course, a lot of Palestinian students, pro-Palestine on the other. And the, I think the Israeli students headed out earlier. The pro-Palestine went even longer. And then they kind of rolled around uh, campus and different places off campus and so on. It, they're just very, it's a, it's a, to them, it's a, it's a righteous cause. And it's, it's really a part of their, it's a part of the belief system that they've adopted. You know, well, who it, had more when, on that day? That's a good question. When I look at the pictures, it looks like they're pretty even. So I'm not really sure. Okay, so that's interesting because I'm not seeing that online. I, I'm not. I'm seeing on Twitter just you know one after the other uh, free Palestine rallies on campuses. I'm not seeing the Jewish kids. I'm not seeing the the pro Israel side. That's what they mostly are. And again, I wasn't there, so I I actually walked past the campus. I was, but they were checking IDs. Um, to go in. And I probably could have gone in because I have an alumni ID. But anyway, I didn't realize that this protest was going on. But when I did look at the picture that was posted in Columbia Spectator, it did look, if they were saying, if they were describing it accurately, like, oh, pro-Palestine, it's on this side, pro-Israel, it's on that side. It seemed like it was pretty even. But again, that was just a really quick view, and I have no idea. Obviously, we're not seeing a lot of pro-Israel protests on campus. We're seeing mostly mostly pro-Palestine. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if it's that many at Columbia, you can imagine elsewhere. What is it like for conservative students on campus? I mean, there's always been the, you know, there's the Republicans, the, the student Republicans and the Federalist Society and all that. Like, do they just tend to keep their mouths shut? Like, are they they just like off in their corner somewhere doing their own thing? So funny because, yeah, in a way, it's just so funny to think. I mean, before I went to Columbia, it was after right after Trump was elected. And I was like, okay, I know I'm doing this pep talk to myself. I know I'm going to encounter some conservative people there and I just have to keep my mouth shut. And I, you know, it was like the total opposite. You know, I never would have in a million years thought it would be the opposite. I mean, I knew that it wasn't going to be overrun with conservatives, but I was kind of trying to prepare myself to kind of steel myself against these conservative talking points that I was like allergic to at the time. So yeah, they are pretty quiet. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when you say that, like what happens to the conservative kids, I think of this guy, Julian Von Abel, who you might even recognize his name. You've probably heard it because it was a viral incident that happened in, I think, maybe December 2019 at Columbia, where he was maybe a sophomore or junior. He's a physics student, you know, geeky guy, white guy, glasses. And I believe he was drunk. I think that that was reported because it was like at two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning in front of Butler Library there on Columbia's campus, which is right in the main main part of campus there. And he was on video saying how, uh, you know, the Western, what did he say? The West created the world um, and I love white people and uh, we invented science and we, you know, going on this like pro... Pro West. Maybe somebody roofied him. Jumping up and down, right? And of course, there's this group of students around him all having their cameras out recording him. And it's them against him. And I think it was maybe like six, eight, or eight students. And they're yelling, say it again, say it again. And they're saying, you know, this and that. And he's saying, you know, and 
they're like, uh, you know, and he's like, I, I love all people. I'm not racist. I love white people, but I love white people too. And I, you know, just going off and, you know, of course the next day we get the, the, the letter from the administrators that they're, they're shocked by the, the white supremacist discourse. There was an incident that left so many people rattled and afraid and, uh, you know, he was seen as this kid who was just the epitome of Trumpism, white supremacy, et cetera. Uh, Colin um, uh, Friedersdorf for The Atlantic. Ended oh, Connor. Up, Connor Friedersdorf. Connor, yeah. I'm sorry. Connor Friedersdorf ended up interviewing him because he was really curious about this months later and kind of getting his take. And this guy was like, he was pro, he had been pro-Obama. He was just... You know, he was conservative. I think what he had reacted to, according to these reports and what he said, was they were saying that if you support Trump, you're, you know, you support sexual assault or something like that. And he was like, I don't at all. And then that was kind of how it started. And then, you know, he started kind of jumping up and down and doing this pro-Western civilization thing. And, and, and you know, they're egging him on and it's this, this big thing. But my reaction to it, you said, well, what are the the, the conservative kids doing? It to me, it's it's class. It's Newton's third law. It's like I think it's third, the third law. You know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. You know, it's like of course this kid is going to get drunk, and when he gets drunk, he's gonna like go. Because what other reaction are people gonna have when they're sitting in these classes all day, listening to all of this anti-West? white people are evil and the scourge of the earth kind of discourse. I mean, what, what else are you, it gets to a point where it's going to make you depressed or it's going to make you reactive. It's going to make you a whole bunch of different things. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say this. I don't even know if I should say this to you, but I'm going to anyway. I remember, you know, around that time, probably 2019, you know, I remember I was, I, I, I excelled at Columbia. I did really well. I'm not, I don't regret any of it. It was a, it was a great experience because I really did learn a lot. Um, I mean, it was a huge privilege to be there, but I had a really hard time Dep- depression wise. I, it was, it was scary. It was, it was a stressful period. And I, I've had a lot of identity crises while I was there, but I remember kind of daydreaming at home, you know, and being like, I'm just going to go into Times Square and I'm going to put a sign in front of me and that says like cis white guy, you know, and just light myself on fire. Like I, you know, oh, goodness. you know, just self-immolate because that's apparently that is, would be best for everyone. And this is what, you know, that, I mean, that was, that was kind of how dark, that was how dark my thoughts got at some point. I, I mean, and, and in truth, I was suicidal when I was at Columbia. I hadn't been for years and years and years. And, I was in therapy at the time and we had to devise a plan to, you know, I had to stand at the top of the subway steps rather than on the platform just in case I was tempted to jump, you know, when I was going into school because that was how, it just was such an alienating feeling and it was just, and it was sad and it it was like, it it was weird because I saw, you know, so many people there that professed to kind of have the same ideals that I had had or did still have and going about it in this way that was so backwards and so divisive and not obviously not just for white people, but for black people and for brown people and for people of all orientations and and backgrounds, the way that it was harming and painting entire groups and populations of people as monoliths and just these reductive, reductive takes and these very bigoted, you know, and honestly, neo-racist ideas that were framed as anti-racist floored me. I couldn't believe it. And it was a culture shock. It was, a, and it really, of course, the result was I had to really go inward and say, okay, where do all these ideas come from? Where do these beliefs come from? And I had to do my own research and really like, because that's me. Like, I can't do just, your own research. That's, oh, that's, yeah, uh, well, I can't, I, that's me. Like, own. I can't sit with it, you know? Like, I have to get answers and I have to, I can't run away from stuff, you know? I have to like look at it and really get, you know, what is this? What is going on? I'm curious and I, I want to, to get to the bottom of it. 
Were there back channel conversations going on with people? I mean, you say you felt totally alone, but you couldn't have been the only one. One thing I've noticed is that, you know, there's the there's the kind of public facing narrative and then there's everybody whispering, you know, in the wings. Were you having any of those kinds of conversations with people? My one friend who was the Hare Krishnan cult survivor, he and I would have some uncensored conversations that were really helpful. They were few and far between, but they were helpful. My closest friend was a was a black man. Um, he was like 50, gay, black man, lived in Brooklyn for years and years. He was my closest friend. He, Megan, was more problematic than I was. I mean, the things that would come out of his mouth were like, you know, about all of this kind of stuff. So he, I could speak freely to him, but he kind of, you know, he was very, very vocal to me. And he was, when I would kind of, you know, kind of confess or profess these kind of ideas to him or share something that I had written, he'd be like, Ben, you have to speak out about this. You have to talk about this. Like we need, you know, we need this. And again, that's what I'm going back to is this kind of thing that's not just white people. It's like these, a lot of black students I knew were like, uh, I actually kind of agree with, you know, there it, it's, it's people are people we have, you know, we're, there's just no way is it, can you assume what happens inside the minds of somebody and inside the brain of somebody just on the color of their skin? It's, it's really, it's, it's awful. It's, I mean, it's like, didn't we learn that in kindergarten, you know? Yeah. Well, I I was also thinking, like, I was wondering, is it your friend who was in his fifties, was it easier for him to speak up because at least he's black, he has that, but also, but it's actually harder. Exactly. Like, this is why I always say, why are there so few, for example, black women in this kind of heterodox free speech space? Because, you know, you're, you're an apostate, you get it both ways, right? It's like that you're going to be thrown out by the women as well as the black people. Right. I mean, I, there, there were times and, and as the, as the time went on at Columbia and my classes, I became more uncensored in class. You know, I did become more and I would, oh my God, the way that I would couch these things, you know, like just, <laughs> I recognize that I'm very privileged, you know, or whatever. <laughs> I mean, not to that point, but just like, you know, because, you know, it happens once, it happened again. You know, I mentioned that thing that happened uh, in contemporary, then it happened in a lesbian and gay history course that I was taking. You know, it was just like these, these little things you kind of learn and you're like, oh, okay, well, I really have to, you know, to qualify here. But there were people that would come up to me after class privately and say, you know, I totally like agree with, and they would share an experience or share something, you know, a similar idea that they had about something. I knew that there was, and it might've even, you know what, Megan, it might be the majority of students who knows, but that red guard and that capture is so strong and so scary that, you know, I don't know what the percentages are. I don't know how many people are still thinking for themselves and how many people are not, and they've just turned off their brains and they've really learned how to capitalize on being a part of that that mob and that mob mentality. But one other example, I had met a, a guy, I won't say his name, um, I don't think he would even mind, but he was in the School of General Studies as well. He was studying the arts, really nice guy, really sweet, just docile guy, straight guy. And um, we had gotten friendly, you know, at, at an event. Um, and then I ran into him off campus some months later. It was maybe like the second time that I ever met him. And I said, Hey, how are you? And and he said, Good. And I and I and I happened to say to him, How are you like in Colombia? And he said, I've started having panic attacks in class. And his face was so red, and I felt so bad for him because he was like, like he it just came out. And I said, Oh God. And I right away I was like, I probably know what this, you know. And he said, yeah, I'm just terrified of, he's like, I had this experience where these people screamed at me and I, I mean, he explained the situation. He had a black female student had, had spoken about the professional world and maybe said something about how she was concerned or worried about the, you know, making it in the professional world after she left and, and, or something. And he, having be, being an older student who had had worked in the professional world, he had volunteered and said, "You know what? Honestly, everybody feels like that. You know, you're going to do great, and it's everybody's just kind of faking it until they make it, something like that." Mm-hmm. And then another black student said, "I don't know what we have to listen to a white guy talk to a black girl about 
how it's going to be and you know said this really you know derogatory stuff and he just went completely red and he was like and the professor was a black professor did the black he say anything no afterwards did my friend this guy that i knew did he get an email from the professor yes and guess what that black professor said i do not stand by what that those students were saying that is not how i feel that is not <sighs> a good representation but he said nothing in the class oh my gosh and so infuriating he he started having panic attacks you know and he would say too he was like you know it just gets really tiring because when people say he's like he's in these writing classes or whatever and he's like and they're like oh just what we like you know he would be the only guy in a class and there were a lot of classes where i was the only guy absolutely because i'm studying writing there and there's a lot of women and you know he would say it just gets really tiring when you're in a class of 12 people and like someone makes a joke and the professor laughs and says like oh yeah just like what we need like another mediocre white guy writing blah 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 and then they would kind of look at him and say like oh sorry no offense you know and it's like you know with all of this talk about microaggressions it's like that's just if that's not a microaggression i don't know what is it's lazy it's lazy cliche but it's also like it's blatantly discriminatory language and for all the talk that we hear about microaggressions and about speaking right and honoring people that are different it's very weird to be encountering that and then to see it so blatantly and acceptably violate like you know violated those kind of unspoken or no really spoken roles violated just carelessly and then being you know, applauded or 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 just okayed. Again, a lot of that is rooted at the in the curriculum. You know, it's it's very it's a weird thing with this core curriculum. You know, classes have to do with Western civilization. You know, masterpieces of Western literature and contemporary Western civil. You know, and it is a lot about reading. You know, the greats in the Western canon and so on. So you're there's it's a very it's a weird duality to be you know, encountering this stuff and then to go to your next class and they're like, oh, the West is shit. You know, it's a very weird experience, yeah, well, weird thing. Whiplash. Yeah. Well, then I want to keep you um, a little bit over time for our paying subscribers. But I mean, my last question, I wonder how you feel about this. Are you optimistic that this is going to change? So I've got this like kind of ongoing difference of difference of viewpoint with my uh, podcast partner, Sarah Hader, on my other podcast. Like, she's very, very pessimistic about the future of these institutions, and she thinks that there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. We're not going to get out of this alive. I think that this is such, such nonsense that it is not sustainable. I mean, we're seeing all the time, it's just, it's being chipped away at. I think especially this situation with Israel has been a wake-up call for a lot of people who were just kind of, you know, standing by, nodding along. Um, but when you're seeing this level of anti-Semitism coming from elite, you know, supposedly liberal, enlightened, educated sects of society, it's shocking. And in fact, we just had at the University of Pennsylvania, we just had a major donor, John Hunts- Huntsman, uh, say that he was not going to be giving one more dollar because of the response to the situation in Israel. I have to think it will have an effect, but what do you think? I mean, I I do too. I think it will have an effect. I don't know. Maybe we're at a tipping point. Maybe we're at a watershed moment. I have no idea. I'm more in line, like you were saying about Sarah um, Hader, your your co-host on your other podcast, that you said that she is more pessimistic and cynical about it. I'm typically in that lane as well. Yes, I agree with you, Megan. It's not sustainable. But it's so deeply rooted and it's complex. And I think that there, I, I don't know. I, I But what's going to happen? Like, there's going to be no more college? Like, I don't, what is the alternative? It's, we can't keep going this way. I mean, it is a self-annihilating way of being in the world. So I, I don't know how to answer it. I guess it's just like what's really interesting to me and what I've been thinking about is like, it's weird. A U, the U.S. is a very strange place because we are. You're not supposed to say this. You know, you can't say it's racist. I think to say we're a melting pot, right? So we're a multicultural. <laughs> you know, we're we're a, we're a nation of immigrants, right? But the U.S. is the one place where in your universities you can have like the most like blatantly anti-American and anti-Western professors and and being tenured 
you know, and being employed and and talking and speaking. I mean, do you think that an anti-Iranian, you know, American could go and teach at the University of Tehran? You know, I mean, there's just, it's weird that we have that, you know, in a lot of ways, and I'm not just talking about, you know, the Iranian professors, whatever. I'm just saying like the call is coming from inside the house, you know, it's, it's, yeah, and the house is going to self-destruct, I feel like, or yeah. or, or it's just going to lose its currency. Like, I mean, how valuable is a Harvard education at this point? Exactly. Are, are, the corporations aren't going to stand for it anymore. It's really follow the money. Right. Precisely. That's precise. It's, it's going to be follow the money. And, you know, but see this, it's worked in a lot of ways because of like, for lack of a better phrase, you know, or term, woke capitalism, you know, because it has been lucrative. And profitable, but it's not going to stay that way. And so I think that you know what you might be right—that money is going to is going to turn it around. And I don't think it has been that profitable. I mean, go woke, go broke. They've been saying for the last several years. Yeah. I think that there's been an illusion of profitability. Mm-hmm. I think it's been yeah, most, you're right. mostly yeah, fashion. You're probably right. You're probably I don't know, right. It's very. I, this is. I wonder if this is like an age thing because. You know, Sarah and I are 20 years apart in age. You and I are not that far apart in age, not 20 years anyway. And I I just feel like people who are very young, who haven't known any other way, they have only seen universities be this way. They have only seen news organizations and the media like this. They don't know of an NPR that was like an intelligent, nuanced, like really super interesting thing to listen to. <laughs> like, you know, there's a reason that we used to listen to it all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if that's part of it. I mean, maybe I'm naive. Many people say I am, but I just, I, I worry that there's going to be an overcorrection, if anything, and we're just going to go just react in really unproductive ways. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of people. I mean, that's a very legitimate and very real concern. You know, people are like, what happens when, you know, there's this authoritarian comes in, totalitarianism comes in. And that's why, you know, we have to worry about people like Trump and people, you know, I mean, Trump did break a lot of people's brains in a lot of ways. He broke my brain. I mean, he broke, you know, with, with everything that happened. It's just, you know, I think that, Again, going back to that idea where I think about this a lot, this kind of Newton's law of like equal and opposite reaction. You know, it's like you're going to, if when you have this radical stuff or when this big thing, you're going to get kind of the the equal and opposite reaction to it. Trump was a huge, like he was a, he was in a lot of ways a blessing to a lot of these these leftist radicals because it was this excuse to just go balls to the wall. Yeah. And then the way that they reacted, then it was the right to go balls to the wall. I mean, it was just, we're bouncing and ping-ponging back and forth. And it's going to be, so yeah, that's not sustainable because people are just going to tire of it, you know, but I think that that, that's a big part of it. Yeah. Well, all right. I'm going to keep you for some overtime, but in the meantime, Ben, thank you so much for coming on at the last minute and talking about this. I'll have you back when you're when your book comes out. But, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Okay, and now for something completely different. Gender. <laughs> we don't talk about it enough around here. So actually, um, I knew we were going to talk um, about uh, Israel-Palestine today, but I also uh, had noticed a tweet that I that I sent you having to do with the relationship between gay men and gender identity ideology. Somebody wrote, this is, I don't know who this is. They wrote, I'm so sad to objectively note that a lot of the propagation of gender identity ideology is done by gay men. It's almost an obsession of mine, this person is saying, to find out why. I would really like to find psychologists, sociologists to look into this thoroughly. Add your possible explanation below. And then a number of people chimed in. Somebody said, well, the same person said, having been bullied before for being feminine, they think they're protecting other feminine men. Gay men love women, feel safe around women, often share deep conversations, but they have little clue about female anatomy and underestimate the importance of privacy for women. Okay, what do you have to say about this? Yeah, those, those are a couple of good points. I and I, I have had this conversation with a number of people, and I feel like everybody has a different opinion on why gay men are responsible or, you know, or so a lot of gay men are responsible for kind of propagating gender identity ideology. And, I mean, and, it's women. I, th- I would put it in order. I would put women and then gay men. Yeah. And so, 
Yeah, like I, I would say maybe I think so. Yeah, I, guess I would agree with that. That was my conversation with Ben Appel, along with a little taste of the second portion of our conversation. If you want to hear that portion, become a paying subscriber at megandom.substack.com. That is the way you support this podcast. It gets you all kinds of bonus content. If you join at the founding member level, you can join me for a Zoom hangout on Sunday, October 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time. And more importantly, you can hear the rest of this conversation, which is pretty, pretty juicy and fascinating. And it is with Ben Appel who is a writer living in New York. His memoir, Cis White Gay, The Making of a Gender Heretic, is what we're going to be talking about in that second portion, is forthcoming. His work has appeared in Newsweek, Spiked, Daily Mail, Washington Examiner, Queer Majority, and Unheard. What else do you need to know? I think that's it for now. Giving you a lot. I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you then. Thank you.